0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: I'm John Dickerson in Washington. Today on Face the Nation, we'll bring you two big interviews. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on the deadliest fighting in the Middle East in years. Plus Dr. Anthony Fauci. Breaking overnight, devastating Israeli missile strikes in Gaza, retaliatory attacks from the militant group Hamas, plus unprecedented mob violence in the streets between Arabs and Jews adds up to a dire situation in the Mideast. We'll talk exclusively with Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. THEN CELEBRATION AND CONFUSION OVER THE CDC'S SURPRISE ABOUT FACE FOR VACCINATED PEOPLE ON MASK WEARING. THE RULE IS VERY SIMPLE. GET VACCINATED OR WEAR A MASK UNTIL YOU DO. IT'S A MILESTONE IN THE 14-MONTH-LONG PANDEMIC, BUT IT'S ALSO CAUSE FOR HEAD SCRATCHING WHEN IT COMES TO ENFORCING AND FOLLOWING THE NEW GUIDANCE. WE'LL CHECK IN WITH DR. ANTHONY FAUCI. Plus, a massive fuel pipeline is back in service after a crippling cyber attack that triggered a gas shortage in the southeast. What can be done to curb these kinds of attacks? We'll talk with the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Congressman Adam Schiff, and Chris Krebs, the former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. We'll also hear from Senators Kirsten Gillibrand and Joni Ernst, a bipartisan duo closing in on a law that will reform the way the military handles sexual assault cases. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Margaret is on maternity leave. We begin today with the dramatic escalation of violence in the Middle East. Over the last week, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health, at least 181 Palestinians, including 52 children, were killed in Gaza, with more than 1,200 wounded. According to the Israeli Defense Forces, eight Israelis have been killed, including two children. CBS News foreign correspondent Imtiaz Tayab is in Tel Aviv and just filed this report. Israel's
2: bombardment of Gaza is only intensifying. Three buildings were flattened this morning in a series of airstrikes killing 23 people. It's the deadliest attack since violence broke out with Hamas nearly a week ago. But the horrors of Gaza took a twist yesterday when Israeli fighter jets destroyed a tower that was home to international media outlets, including the Associated Press and Al Jazeera. Journalists were warned to leave ahead of the strike that's being called an assault on press freedom. Israel says the building was being used by Hamas intelligence but offered no evidence. Associated Press President Gary Pruitt says they won't be silenced. That building provided the best vantage point for the world to see the events in Gaza, and now that building is destroyed. Israel's strike on the tower came just 20 minutes after Hamas showered rockets over Tel Aviv in an unprecedented attack. One landed in this busy intersection, badly damaging the street and killing one person. Never has a Hamas rocket struck the heart of Tel Aviv quite like this, and never have we seen damage like this either. Diplomatic attempts to contain the conflict in Gaza are underway. But in East Jerusalem, where this all began, Israeli soldiers continued to confront protesters angry at the looming evictions of six Palestinian families by Jewish settlers. Muna Jord, who could lose her home, says it's time for this catastrophe to stop. It's hard to imagine there are potentially more serious problems unfolding amidst all this unrest. But across Israel, in mixed Arab and Jewish cities, there's been several nights of horrific neighbor-versus-neighbor sectarian violence not seen for decades. It's yet another complex issue for a country that's also politically paralyzed. After four elections in just two years, Israel's political parties remain unable to form a lasting government. And the fear now is without any
1: unifying leadership, things could spiral out of control. And while we wait for Prime Minister Netanyahu to get connected, we want to bring in the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, Congressman Schiff, I want to ask you about the situation in Israel. Israel has a right to defend itself, but is taking criticism about the amplitude of that response, at least 181 Palestinians dead, including 52 children, the attack on the building that housed the Associated Press and Al Jazeera. Is the response disproportionate in your mind to these attacks from Hamas?
3: Well, first of all, it's a terrible tragedy, what's going on, and the loss of life uh, is just deplorable. Every rocket uh, that Hamas uh, sends into Israel is a deliberate effort to kill civilians, and I think we need to understand that. These rockets are indiscriminate uh, and, by definition, designed to kill civilians. Uh, Israel has the right to defend itself, but has to use every effort to avoid civilian casualties. Now, I think they are trying, but nonetheless, the death toll increases and the violence has got to stop. Uh, and I think we need to do everything possible to bring about a ceasefire. I think the administration needs to push harder uh, on Israel uh, and uh, the Palestinian Authority to stop the violence, uh, bring about a ceasefire and these hostilities, uh, and get back to a process of trying to resolve this long standing
1: conflict. The Biden administration has sent an envoy to Israel and is working on trying to get. Uh, to get the violence to cease. But what more can the administration do? What leverage uh, do you think it can use against uh, with Israel?
3: Well, I think there just has to be sustained diplomatic engagement uh, of the United States with our Palestinian partners, uh, with our Israeli partners, with Egypt and other countries uh, to try to bring about an end to this, uh, this unspeakable loss of life. Um, And I think that international effort, if sustained, will bring about that result. Uh, But we're going to have to speak out clearly about this. This has got to end. We can't have the targeting of buildings with uh, press organizations. Uh, We can't continue to see this uh, loss of civilian life. Uh, It's got to come to an end. Um, And while I, you know, I also want to say, while I fully uh, defend Israel's right to defend itself, uh, it needs to do what it needs to do to protect its people. I don't want that to be interpreted as support for Israeli settlement policy or the eviction of Palestinians from their homes. Uh, The Palestinian people have a right to live in peace and freedom, uh, to a state of their own living side by side uh, in peace with Israel. And I think those points have to be underscored as well. But right now the priority has to be ending the violence.
1: I want to pick up on that point you're making, and I'll address this to the prime minister as well when we talk to him. But Bernie Sanders wrote a piece in The New York Times, and the headline was, the U.S. must stop being an apologist for the Netanyahu government. And his argument seemed to be distinct from these clashes that have been going on for the last week, that the U.S. supports Israel, a very strong longtime ally, but it supports essentially the Netanyahu government, which puts such pressure on the Palestinians, that it makes any kind of two-state solution or peace solution impossible and that, in fact, it creates conditions that are impossible for the Palestinians to live under uh, and that the U.S. government should break from Netanyahu. And we have the prime minister right now, and I'll get back to you later in the broadcast, uh, Congressman, but now we're going to switch to the prime minister. Good morning, Mr. Prime Minister. Thank you for being with us. Good morning. I want to start with, uh, the, yesterday was the worst clash in this seven-day conflict. The last one of a similar sort in 2014 lasted six weeks. How much longer are these hostilities going to continue?
4: Well, we hope that it doesn't continue very long, but uh, we were attacked by Hamas on uh, our national day, Jerusalem Day. Uh, attacks, Unprovoked attacks on Jerusalem. Uh, and then thousands of rockets and missiles on our cities—and uh, I think any country uh, has to defend itself It has a natural right of self-defense—will do whatever it takes to restore order and quiet uh, and the security of our people and deterrence. We're trying to degrade Hamas's terrorist abilities and to degrade their will to do this again. So, it'll take some time. I hope it won't take long, but it's not immediate.
1: 2,900 rockets uh, fired on Hamas, according to one rep- r- fired from Hamas, according to one report. But there's also a report that Egypt offered a truce. Hamas said yes. You said no. Why?
4: Well, that's not what I know. And frankly, uh, if Hamas thought that they could just fire on our rockets and then sit back and enjoy uh, immunity, uh, that's false. We are targeting a terrorist organization that is targeting our civilians and hiding behind their civilians, using them as human shields. We're doing everything we can to hit the terrorists themselves, their rockets, their rocket caches and their arms, uh, but we're not going to uh, just let them get away with it, neither would you. I mean, you just imagine what would have happened if uh, you had uh, 2,900 rockets fired on Washington and New York and others. I think you, you would understand our position. I think you do, actually.
1: The precision of that targeting has uh, been up for question. There's been a lot of focus on the bombing on Saturday in Gaza of a building that housed the Associated Press and Al Jazeera. The Committee to Protect Journalists demanded detailed and documented justification. This morning, there's a Jerusalem Post story that says the Americans were shown a smoking gun, uh, that uh, proof that Hamas was in that building. What is that proof? um, And did you show it to the Americans?
4: Well, we share with our American friends all that intelligence. And here's the intelligence we had. It's about Palestinian uh, terrorist—an intelligence office for the Palestinian terrorist organization housed in that building that plots and organizes the terror attacks against Israeli civilians. So it's a perfectly legitimate target. Uh, And I can tell you that we took every precaution to make sure that there were no uh, civilian injuries, in fact, no deaths, no injuries whatsoever— Uh, I can't say injuries. I don't know if somebody received a a fragment of a a stone. I don't know that. But no people are killed. Now, imagine, ask yourself, how is that possible? You see these high-rise towers that are used by Hamas over and over again. They collapse, and no one is killed. Why does that happen? Because we, unlike Hamas, take special precautions to tell people, leave the building, leave the premises. We make sure that everyone is gone before we bring down those terrorist facilities. And that's the difference between Israel and Hamas. They deliberately target our cities, deliberately target our civilians. They glorify the death of children and, yeah. and uh, civilians and old people. They are happy with it. Yeah. I think they're happy with uh, any deaths that are caused... To them, we grieve for every non-combatant loss in Gaza, and we grieve for all our civilians I, I, who die. We don't. We're not happy with it, and we try to minimize it.
1: I want to get to minimizing those casualties. But you spoke with President uh, Biden yesterday. It's inconceivable you would have talked to him and not shared proof of Hamas in those buildings that housed the journalists. Did you share that with him?
4: Well, we pass it through the uh, intelligence services to our people, to uh, those people. Uh, Why do you think we brought down that building? The interesting thing is, I would say, that, you know, all the journalists, one of the, uh, I think, AP journalists said, we were lucky to get out. No, you weren't lucky to get out. It wasn't luck. It's because we took special pains to call people in those buildings to make sure that the premises were vacated. Mm -hmm. And that's why we brought down that building. And look. You have your own experiences, I think, in, in Mosul, in Fallujah, in Afghanistan. Uh, I, I think you can appreciate the efforts we go through in dense urban fighting when terrorists are uh, uh, targeting civilians or hiding behind civilians, how difficult that is. We do our best to avoid civilian casualties, and we Mr. did that yesterday with that building as well.
1: Mr. Prime Minister, the arguments about how careful Israel has been are familiar ones to your critics. And in this case, with 181 Palestinians dead, 52 of them children, there's significant criticism. Amnesty International has asked the International Criminal Court to look into a refugee camp attack. The UN is meeting today. Foreign ministers of the EU are meeting. And and the, the response has been like this one from the foreign minister of Ireland. Israel has international legal obligation to protect children in conflict and are not doing so.
4: That's just a false. I mean, the reason we have these casualties is because Hamas is criminally attacking us from uh, civilian neighborhoods, from schools, from homes, from office buildings. That's what they're doing. Uh, And we're taking action, trying to target them with as great precision as we can. Unfortunately, there are uh, occasionally civilian casualties, which we regret. But here's what happens. When the international community attacks Israel, they're actually encouraging Hamas to continue these attacks, because Hamas says, it's great. We're both killing Israeli civilians, and uh, unfortunately, some of our—and uh, they're happy with their own civilian casualties, because it gets that—the uh, right. international community to focus their attacks on Israel instead of Hamas. Wrong. That's wrong. Sure. It's both wrong and unproductive, because but. actually what it does is prolong the conflict and escalate and increase the number of casualties that, uh, that happen as a result of the, but the question, continuation Mr. of the conflict.
1: The question, Mr. Prime Minister, is uh, U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken said that Israel has an extra burden, that Israel, because of its strength and power and dominance, has an extra burden on these question of ca- casualties. The question is whether Israel is meeting its extra burden uh, in, in responding to these rocket attacks from Hamas.
4: Certainly are. And I can tell you that uh, there have been many studies by serious military analysts who have compared Israel's actions with that of other Western armies in uh, similar situations, fighting uh, radical Islamists, uh, whether it's in uh, Iraq or in uh, Afghanistan or elsewhere. And you know how prolonged those conflicts are, how many casualties are caused. Uh, so I, I think there, is a, uh, there has to be a measure of fairness. Uh, there has to be a measure of... Uh, of reasonableness in projecting mm-hmm. this kind of criticism against the Israeli army that is second to none mm-hmm. in seeking to minimize civilian casualties while protecting our own civilians. Le- uh, you know, if Hamas would simply move these rockets out of the civilian areas, if they move their command posts out of these uh, homes and offices, uh, then there, there wouldn't be any problem. Let you me ask know you, it, Mr. Prime But the fact is, they're sending thousands of rockets yeah. on our cities with a specific purpose of murdering our civilians from these places. Let me ask you now, what would you do? Let me ask this. If it Mr. happened to Washington AND to New York, you know, Mr. you know Prime damn Minister, well what you do. Let me ask you a question. You do at bro- the very least what we're doing.
1: Let me ask you a broader question that was articulated by Senator Bernie Sanders which is distinct from the clashes over the last week. His argument is that the treatment of the Palestinians is is so rough that they are marginalized, demonized in such a fashion that there can never be peace, never be a two-state solution. And that uh, that your treatment of the Palestinians outside of this week uh, is creates conditions that are always going to lead to this kind of unrest, not just the missile attacks, but the riots you see in cities. What's your response to that?
4: Well, let's divide it into two. First of all, the uh, the uh, Hamas is not uh, is not attacking us because they're trying to uh, increase uh, uh, the, the welfare of Palestinians. In fact, they're taking huge sums to build the terror tunnels, which we've uh, uh, been able to neutralize, uh, to uh, have rockets, missiles and other armaments. They're not building up Gaza. They're, they're doing everything in their power to turn it into a fortified terror camp in order to destroy Israel. And they openly say their goal is to destroy Israel. They're not interested in any kind of, uh, uh, any kind of coexistence, any kind of—the uh, uh, the kind of peace, the four peace treaties that I've made with Arab countries. They're changing the Middle East. They're trying everything in their power. To avoid the path of peace and reconciliation, so uh, I think any any objective observer understands that Hamas is out to destroy the state of Israel, and they're not they're not and a partner. As far as the uh, citizens of Israel or Arabs, I've done more than any other prime minister, to, and spent billions and billions of dollars in Israeli shekels, uh, in five times more than all the previous governments combined, to ensure the the that. Our Israeli Arab citizens, all of them, can be Mr. part of the Israeli miracle, the great economic success story. Uh, I've invested that because I believe in it. I didn't do it now, and I didn't do it for CBS Face the Nation. I really believe in this. There has been a minority, a violent minority, Mr. that has tried to challenge that as well and to all kill right, Mr. Prime innocent Minister, me, people. I won't tolerate let me get that. Before you, Neither Arabs killing before Israelis well Or Jews killing Arabs or Arabs killing Jews.
1: Let me ask, I want you to respond to one other thing before we go, which is your domestic challenges. You are under investigation for bribery, fraud, breach of trust. You've also had some uh, difficulty for failed attempts to put together a government in the last 23 months. This leads to the criticism that your current actions are basically an effort to stay in power. And what's your response to that?
4: That's preposterous. You know, I... When I was uh, a young soldier, 18 years old, I held a fellow soldier who died in my arms. A few years later, my brother, my older brother, died while uh, leading a rescue mission in Entebbe, Uganda, to release Israeli hostages. I've seen comrades fall. I've seen my brother fall. And I think anybody who knows me knows that I've never, ever subordinated security concerns, the life of our soldiers, the life of our citizens for political interests. That's just hogwash. I'll do what I have to do to protect the lives of Israeli citizens and to restore peace. I've made peace with four Arab countries. I'm glad that we have a restoration of some considerable calm within Israel. That's my goal, to restore peace and quiet and to assure tranquility and reconciliation for all.
1: But this is a persistent criticism, Mr. Prime Minister. Why do you think it persists?
4: It persists because uh, I've been reelected five times. It persists because I beat every other candidate in uh, pu- public polls and in direct election uh, simulations. Apparently, the people of Israel, the majority, don't agree with this false criticism and this cynicism. Right. They know that I'm standing there for Israel, and I'm doing everything I can for the safety and prosperity of the Israeli people. By the way, all of Israel's citizens, Jews and Arabs alike.
1: All right, Mr. Prime Minister, we're out of time. Thanks so much for being with us.
5: Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.
1: And we're back with the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff. Congressman, I want to jump to the issue of the colonial pipeline. What do you think was exposed by this ransomware attack in terms of our vulnerabilities?
3: Well, that our critical infrastructure is just not adequately protected. Uh, This is something that we knew before this attack, but uh, now we can see so graphically. uh, And I think it really calls upon the government to insist that uh, a lot of this critical infrastructure that's in private hands be better protected. Uh, And if it means the government is going to have to set out minimum security standards, cybersecurity standards for private industry and critical infrastructure, then that's what we need to do. Um, But uh, we're all too vulnerable. Uh, I think the government is also going to have to go after these ransomware groups. And I think we're gonna have to hold the host governments like Russia, China, and elsewhere responsible uh, and force them to indemnify against these attacks when they allow these criminal groups to operate uh, on their soil.
1: When you say go after them, retaliate with attacks or try to prosecute them? What do you mean?
3: Well, I think we certainly ought to prosecute them when we can, although that's very difficult given where they're located. But I think we need to use our own cyber capabilities to go after their infrastructure, uh, to cripple their ability to conduct more ransomware attacks, to uh, deprive them of the resources that they gain by uh, claiming ransoms uh, and make their life very difficult. Uh, We have the capability to do these things. I think we need to utilize that capability.
1: In the minute we have left, there is sometimes called a blind spot between the intelligence agencies you work with and the corporations. how do we close that blind spot? How do they communicate in a way? One's public, one's private.
3: Well, we need to increase that collaboration. We've tried in the past, uh, not very successfully. We need to make sure that the private industry feels comfortable sharing information with the government and, uh, and vice versa while protecting people's privacy. But we also need to hold them accountable. Uh, private industry needs to report to the government and they need to report to their own customers when they've been the subject of cyber attack or hack because it's individual privacy and data that's often being compromised. So there needs to be greater collaboration and a lot greater disclosure.
1: Okay. Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you so much for being with us on this exciting morning. We appreciate it. Thank you. If you're not able to watch the full Face the Nation, you can set your DVR or we're available on demand. Plus, you can watch us through our CBS or Paramount Plus app. And we'll be right back with Dr. Anthony Fauci, plus Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York. Stay with us.
6: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500
1: Welcome back to Face the Nation. We want to go next to the former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Chris Krebs. Good morning, Chris I want to start with the Colonial Pipeline. It was not intended to undermine American infrastructure, but it suggested some vulnerabilities. What did we learn? Good
7: morning, John. First, I think that if there was any remaining question as to whether cybercrime and ransomware in particular was a national security threat, I I think that question resolved itself over the last week. I think one of the, the key things I took away from the last week is that business executives have to stop looking at cybersecurity is a technical risk issue, and it truly is a business risk. I mean, we're talking resilience of the national economy, we've got to do a better job in terms of closing out vulnerabilities and making our systems and our operations uh, more resilient.
1: The president signed an executive order this week to try to get at some of those issues. What's your evaluation of that executive order?
7: I think it's a a really ambitious uh, plan. I think it should be effective if implemented properly, which I have confidence in the team both at my old agency as well as in the National Security Council and elsewhere. But the benefit here is that typically executive orders really only apply to the federal government. And what we're going to see is through the power of the purse, through the purchasing uh, apparatus of the united states government and the software from u.s tech companies and others we're going to see improved security standards and, uh, and improved security performance and there's a trickle down or cascading effect where uh, you know the government buys the same things that we do out in industry and at home so the, uh, the all boats should rise with the tide here
1: so your argument is that if companies have to step up their game to provide products to the government they'll use those same new, higher quality products they create in the private sector.
7: They're not gonna build two different engineering teams to develop software. Uh, the same code that goes out for government is gonna go out to industry and you're gonna see better security out there as a result. And I think that's a great thing.
1: You talked about execution, always a trick in government. A lot of, a lot of great plans, execution's the challenge. You, the position you held, there is an acting, not confirmed director. Uh, IS THAT A PROBLEM AND SHOULD THAT BE FIXED QUICKLY?
7: WELL, I'M REALLY OPTIMISTIC BY THE CANDIDATE OR THE NOMINEE THAT THE PRESIDENT PICKED, uh, JEN EASTERLY. AND HE EVEN EARLIER THIS WEEK uh, ENCOURAGED THE SENATE TO TAKE UP THAT NOMINATION QUICKLY. JEN IS, I'VE KNOWN JEN FOR YEARS. SHE'S AN INCREDIBLY EFFECTIVE LEADER. Uh, SHE'S SPENT TIME IN GOVERNMENT AS WELL AS INDUSTRY. AND SHE KNOWS WHAT IT TAKES TO GET THE JOB DONE. BUT but it, IT TAKES MORE THAN OBVIOUSLY ONE PERSON. And there is going to be a significant lift required by not just my old agency, but really every government agency. And it's going to require some resourcing. So the the Congress needs to put into place additional personnel as well as funding to execute these programs across the government.
1: And just to uh, pull people back into the stakes here, what was exposed by this ransomware attack give us a sense of what we should think about in terms of the possibility of future challenges on a national security and infrastructure front.
7: Well, this is ransomware in particular, something I've been uh, barking about for a number of years. Unfortunately, I think it's been treated as a law enforcement matter and not necessarily a national security threat. So you didn't necessarily get the full attention of the U.S. government and some of our allies. But I think we've broken through that threshold. And, you know, I think the way we're gonna get past ransomware, it's gonna take kind of a, a three-pronged approach. First is that we need every organization to improve their security. And uh, as the Congress contemplates an infrastructure bill, they've got to include cybersecurity investments in that bill. And the, the second thing we have to do is we have to break the business model. It's, it, r- ransomware is a business and business is good. I've said that a thousand times. So we've gotta go look at what enables it and that in- includes cryptocurrency. Uh, as well as uh, whether we can pay, whether ransom should be paid, and if so, how is that uh, categorized or logged? And then the third thing is we have to go after the actors. Uh, Chairman Schiff mentioned it earlier. We have a set of tools that we can use to de-platform effectively these ransomware actors. But the last piece here is that when uh, the president goes and meets with President Putin over the summer, this has got to be on the table. Uh, Sovereign states do not allow criminal enterprises to operate out of their territory like this without repercussions.
1: On the question of ransom, is there any way to make paying ransom illegal? And do you think uh, that should be on the table?
7: Uh, Sure, it could be done with a stroke of a pen. Legislation could, uh, could state that. I think there needs to be though a very thorough policy conversation i think there's absolutely some edge cases where the payment of a ransom as a last resort uh, may be uh, necessary and that's that's a case where a hospital where lives are at stake might be justified i do not like saying that uh, because i think it could uh, actually put a target on them but nonetheless i think there are probably some edge cases but at a bare minimum any organization that suffers a ransomware attack should be required to notify the federal government. And they, I think one element we may be able to look at is seeking a license to pay that ransom where the information on A, the victim is tracked as well as where that money goes so we can continue to paint up the criminal ecosystem of ransomware.
1: All right, Chris Krebs, we're uh, likely to be coming back to this issue again, as prevalent as it is. We appreciate your time this morning now we turn to the coronavirus pandemic and president biden's chief medical advisor dr anthony fauci good morning dr fauci
8: good morning john good to be with you
1: good to be with you the new guidance on masks is confusing people a little because two weeks ago the cdc said that people who had been vaccinated were safer while wearing masks now there's new guidance what changed in that period
8: Well, what's happened, there's been an accumulation of data, John, uh, showing in the real world effectiveness of the vaccines. It is even better than in the clinical trials, well over 90% protecting you against disease, number one. Number two, a number of papers have come out in the past couple of weeks showing that the vaccine protects even against the variants that are circulating. And thirdly, we're seeing that it is very unlikely that a vaccinated person, even if there's a breakthrough infection, would transmit it to someone else. So the accumulation of all of those scientific facts, information and evidence brought the CDC to make that decision to say, now when you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask, not only outdoors, but you don't need to wear it indoors.
1: So on that third point, let me ask you this. If I have no symptoms and I've been vaccinated, but but I'm infected, What's the difference between that and if I have no symptoms and am infected but have not been vaccinated?
8: Good question, John. And what the, what the issue is, is that the level of virus in your nasopharynx, which is correlated with whether or not you were going to transmit it to someone else, is considerably lower. So even though there are breakthrough infections with vaccinated people, almost always the people are asymptomatic. And the level of virus is so low, it makes it extremely unlikely, not impossible, but very, very low likelihood that they're going to transmit it. Whereas when people who are getting infected, who are without symptoms, who are not vaccinated, generally the titer or the level of virus, relatively speaking, is higher than in the vaccinated individuals.
1: A lot of people have heard about the Yankees. Eight members of the club uh, have tested positive, but it seems to bear out what you're saying, which is uh, most of them have no symptoms, and what you seem to be saying is they have no symptoms, and we don't need to worry about them spreading because they've all been vaccinated.
8: Well, yeah, I mean, it's not going to be absolute zero, but the likelihood, John, of their spreading is really very, very low, and that's one of the reasons why... They're even talking about if you are vaccinated, that you're gonna cut down on the testing of individuals because even if they test positive, the likelihood OF THEIR TRANSMITTING TO SOMEONE ELSE IS REALLY VERY, VERY LOW.
1: SO if, IF A PERSON IS DECIDING WHETHER OR NOT TO GET VACCINATED, THEY HAVE TO KEEP IN MIND WHETHER IT'S GOING TO KEEP THEM HEALTHY. BUT BASED ON THESE NEW FINDINGS, IT WOULD SUGGEST THEY ALSO HAVE AN OPPORTUNITY, IF VACCINATED, TO KNOCK OFF OR BLOCK THEIR ABILITY TO TRANSMIT IT TO OTHER PEOPLE. SO DOES IT INCREASE THE PUBLIC HEALTH GOOD OF GETTING THE VACCINATION OR MAKE THAT CLEARER BASED ON THESE NEW FINDINGS?
8: MAN. You know, John, you said it very well. I couldn't have said it better. It's absolutely the case. And that's the reason why we say, when you get vaccinated, you not only protect your own health, that of the family, but also you contribute to the community health by preventing the spread of the virus throughout the community. In other words, you become a dead end to the virus. And when there are a lot of dead ends around, the virus is not gonna go anywhere. And that's when you get a point that you have a markedly diminished rate of infection in the community. And that's exactly the reason, and you said it very well, of why we encourage people and want people to get vaccinated. The more people you get vaccinated, the safer the entire community is.
1: Dan, do you think now that this guidance has come out on relaxing the mask mandates, if you've been vaccinated, that people who might have been hesitant before will start to get vaccinated in greater numbers?
8: You know, I hope so, John. The underlying reason for the CDC doing this was just based on the evolution of the science that I mentioned a moment ago. But if, in fact, this serves as an incentive for people to get vaccinated, all the better. I hope it does, actually.
1: On the public health messaging of this, one of the this kind of caught some people by surprise. And uh, because people have been so confused over the course of the last 14 months, would it have been better to prepare the way a little bit more for this? Good news, of course, for everyone. But, but because there's been so much confusion over time, would it have been better to kind of walk people up to this very uh, kind of head snapping new news?
8: Well, you know, John, people will say that there may be some merit to that, but as a matter of fact, the CDC did the, did this and took this action based on the data. What they'll do now, and I know we've discussed that with the CDC director, What they'll be doing now is coming out very quickly with individual types of guidances so people will say, well, what about the workplace? What about this? What about that? And I think that's going to be clarified, John, pretty quickly. I would imagine within a period of just a couple of weeks, you're going to start to see significant clarification of some of the actually understandable and reasonable questions that people are asking.
1: You have, throughout your career, talked uh, a lot about vaccinating other parts of the world. Um, There's a moral case for doing it, and also because pandemics don't know anything about borders, the more that it's raging elsewhere, the greater chance a variant comes here. So how do you feel, given that vaccines are being made available now to teenagers where there's very low risk, and also people are turning away the vaccine. How does that make you feel, given the way you've talked throughout your career about the necessity of vaccinating the world, which the United States could do more to help with?
8: You know, John, that's a frequently asked question, and it's not an unreasonable question, but I believe strongly we can do both. You're absolutely right. I mean, I will reconfirm what I've said over many, many years, dating back to the HIV AIDS issues that I feel we do, have a moral responsibility as a rich nation to make sure that others in poorer nations are not deprived of interventions that would be life-saving. But I think we can do both, John. I think we can vaccinate younger people, adolescents and children at the same time that we put a major effort in getting doses of vaccines to those in the lower and middle-income countries. All right, Dr. Anthony Fauci, we
1: really appreciate you being with us. Thanks so much. And we'll be right back.
9: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: The push to overhaul the military's handling of sexual assault cases is moving towards becoming law, thanks to the collaborative efforts of New York Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and Iowa Republican Senator Joni Ernst. The Department of Defense has maintained that they need to be in charge of prosecuting these cases. But Senator Gillibrand told us a lot's changed in the eight years she's been pushing for this bill.
9: Unfortunately, because of their lack of ability to get this done, the rate of sexual assault continues to climb, but the rate of cases going to trial and the rate of cases ending in conviction is going down. So under no measurable is it getting better. What also recently happened was there was a report out of Fort Hood uh, because a young woman named Vanessa Guillen was murdered. And they did a review of what that uh, place was like, and they found it to be a toxic climate. Uh, So toxic that sexual harassment and sexual uh, assault was not only rampant, but it was a permissive atmosphere for that type of behavior.
1: SENATOR Ernst, YOU WERE A COMMANDER IN THE NATIONAL GUARD. HOW HAS YOUR THINKING EVOLVED ON THIS ISSUE SINCE YOU'VE BEEN WORKING ON IT?
5: WELL, THIS HAS a be- BEEN A VERY, VERY CONCERNING ISSUE FOR A NUMBER OF YEARS. NOW, I DO BELIEVE THAT, OF COURSE, the uh, THAT WITHIN THE COMMAND, uh, THE CHAIN OF COMMAND, THERE NEEDS TO BE SOME OVERSIGHT. BECAUSE OF THAT FORT HOOD REPORT, THE HORRIBLE BEHAVIOR, THE BAD COMMAND ENVIRONMENT, um, IT HAS REALLY uh, been obvious to me that we need to make a, a very different change. A large part of that is prevention. We know it's necessary to, to focus on that because by the time we have a perpetrator and a survivor, then we know we've failed.
1: Senator Gillibrand, you have always pushed for taking the investigative power out of the chain of command. Why is that so important in this legislation?
9: Well, it's actually not the investigative power, it's the decision-making power about whether a case should go to trial after the uh, military police have completed their investigation. And so we believe, based on what survivors have told us, is that if you have a trained unbiased military prosecutor who makes that fundamental decision about whether a crime has been committed and whether there's enough evidence to go forward to trial, two things change. One, uh, the prosecutor is going to choose different cases because they have better training, so they'll have better judgment about which cases they can take to trial and whether they can be successful. And second, the perception of the survivors will be that someone who's unbiased, who doesn't have skin in the game, who doesn't know the accused or the accuser, who doesn't have an interest in prosecuting one person or protecting one person over the other because of who they know and how valuable they are to the unit. This allows for professionalism in the adjudication of these cases. And we believe that a trained military prosecutor has the experience and know-how to do this in an unbiased way. That will allow the survivor community to come forward more often.
1: Senator Ernst, one of the main critiques of this decision to move out of the chain of command is that it undermines in a a specific and in general the ability of a commander to hold his uh, troops accountable and and that it changes the commander's role. What's your response to that?
5: Well, that has been my concern in the past, and certainly we want commanders to have control over their units and the the soldiers or airmen, marines, um, say Within those uh, commands. But what this does, it still allows the notification of that commander so that the commander still can go forward and make changes within that command. They should understand if there is bad behavior happening in that command. THEN THEY HAVE THE OPPORTUNITY TO FIX IT. AND IT IS IMPORTANT BECAUSE THIS WILL BE A SMALL NUMBER OF CRIMES COMMITTED WITHIN THE MILITARY. HOWEVER, IT WILL HAVE um, uh, ABSOLUTELY THE EFFECT THAT WE ARE HOPING FOR, WHICH IS THAT IT WILL GO TO A SPECIALIZED PROSECUTOR THAT WILL THEN BE ABLE TO EVALUATE IF THAT CASE MOVES FORWARD OR NOT. THE COMMANDER STILL HAS THE OPPORTUNITY TO DISCIPLINE WITHIN THE UNIT AND CREATE A MUCH better. POSITIVE COMMAND CLIMATE.
1: SENATOR Gillibrand, IN 2014, JOHN MCCAIN TOLD A STORY OF A WOMAN WHO CAME TO HIM AND SAID, uh, ASKED HIM ABOUT HER DAUGHTER ENTERING THE SERVICE, AND HE SAID HE COULD NOT GIVE HIS UNQUALIFIED SUPPORT BECAUSE OF THE SEXUAL ASSAULT CONDITIONS IN THE MILITARY. IF SOMEONE CAME TO YOU AND ASKED YOU THE SAME QUESTION, COULD YOU GIVE UNQUALIFIED SUPPORT OR WOULD YOU ONLY DO THAT AFTER THIS LEGISLATION PASSES?
9: I would support any young person's desire to go into the military because it takes someone of enormous courage, bravery and selflessness to put themselves in harm's way on behalf of others. But my job is to make that safe for any person going into the military. And so we believe that this professionalization makes a difference. One, it will make survivors and victims more comfortable and more confident about this system. And two, it'll have better outcomes. Because why are we asking commanders to go through these complex case files, maybe when they're deployed in Iraq or Afghanistan, when they should be focused on winning a war and training troops with the complexities of a legal litigation? This should be given to a trained military prosecutor so they can focus on their day jobs, the ones that are so important.
1: Senator Ernst, you've talked about how you worked with Senator Gillibrand on this. Uh, is this a template for bipartisan Uh, other kinds of uh, bipartisan
5: work? That give-and-take process that we went through to arrive at a solution that has gained the support of 61 co-sponsors. So this is a template. We want Americans to see that that bipartisanship is alive and well. It takes friendships. It takes a lot of discussions and certainly a partnership and finding compromise through that collaboration. This is what the rest of... uh, Uh, THE CONGRESS SHOULD BE DOING AT A TIME LIKE THIS, TOO, IS TAKING A VERY REAL, A VERY PERSONAL, A VERY INTIMATE ISSUE AND FINDING SOLUTIONS. THAT'S EXACTLY WHAT WE HAVE DONE IN THIS CASE.
1: SENATOR Gillibrand. ANYTHING YOU WOULD ADD TO THAT?
9: I think many people in Congress are bipartisan, and we just have to keep reaching across the aisle, finding that common ground, and building solutions from the ground up. That's something Joni and I have been working together on the Armed Services Committee for the last six years, and we'll continue to do it.
1: Our full interview is available on cbsnews.com. Before we go today, a new focus on freedom as fully vaccinated Americans begin to walk around without required face coverings. The CDC has eased mask restrictions, and the first days of bare-faced delight might remind anyone who wore braces on their teeth of the day they came off. Suddenly, your mouth feels new. There are also likely to be psychological wonders. As we rediscover human interaction, we've been denied.
9: It's so freeing, especially coming right where the weather's getting nice and warm. It's perfect.
1: There will be public smiling in the street. Small talk is going to feel huge. The thrill of the normal will cause people to interrupt conversations to note how normal they feel. And remember the collective sound of human action? The roar of a crowd when a baseball clears the outfield fence. The harmony of voices filling large spaces. The symphony of a coffee shop. We are regaining freedom, a word that's been debated a lot. Freedom! Freedom! But while we prepare to dance in the streets, I'm reminded of these two dancers I filmed during lockdown. This awful time clarified for all of us the people and things in our lives we care about as much as those two cared about their dance routine. That's a freedom, too, the freedom that comes from perspective, freedom to ignore the distractions and fake political fights, to focus on what gives our lives meaning and joy. If we can hang on to that freedom, it will make our new freedom all the more valuable. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, when we'll be speaking with former Defense Secretary Robert Gates For Face the Nation, I'm John Dickerson. Today's guests were Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, President Biden's Chief Medical Advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, former Director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Chris Krebs, Iowa Senator Joni Ernst, and New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 10.30 a.m., 1 p.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern,
0: Free sunday if you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor's back, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.
5: Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you